0: Welcome to episode number 46 of Talking Mopars. On today's show, I'm going to be sharing an interview that I did. For the first time ever, I was on the other side of the mic. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter. And this is Talking Mopars. You're
1: listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to
0: all things Mopar. Welcome back, my friends. It's good to have you back. If you haven't heard of the Muscle Car Place, it's one of the biggest and longest running muscle car related podcasts in the world. Rob Kibby is the host and he was gracious enough to have me on for episode number 440, so I thought I'd share my interview with you and give my comments at the end. So, let's get this show on the road. Today, our guest is Chris
1: Albrecht. Chris hosts the podcast Talking Mopars. He has built this baby as the number one Mopar podcast on planet Earth, which I like, and he himself is known as the Mopar Hunter, since our 440th episode is coming up, I thought it would be good to do something to mark the occasion, and maybe he'll correct me here, but when it comes to Mopar power plants, I think 440 may be the one I think of first, even more than a 426, even more than a 3. Really, 440 is what I think of first. But what I really want to do here is focus on Mopars and celebrate kind of a special day. Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me on, Rob. I'm uh, happy to be here.
1: Totally. So, Chris, let's have some ground rules here. I'm a podcaster. You're a podcaster. We either have to work together or we got to go to like the death and (laughs) only one of us can win. I'm all for working together. (laughs) Sound good?
0: (laughs) Me too, man. Before I ever got into podcasting, I was a fan of many automotive podcasts, including yours. And that kind of paved the way for me to go, you know, I'm obviously not going to do a podcast about muscle cars because that would be competing with the big dogs. But I decided to focus my podcast on what I'm absolutely 100% passionate about, which is Mopars.
1: Totally. And, And most of that was tongue in cheek. And it's a big world out here, man. There is so much room and opportunity. And I have made more friends in the podcast space than I can even count. And it's always been a good thing. It should be that we're competitors, but we're really not. I don't know why it works that way, but it works hand-in-hand, and I really enjoy this. And I can't wait to learn more here. So, Chris, let's start at the basics. Before you even get to the Mopar stuff, this is our first conversation ever. Where are you? (laughs) Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into uh, just loving cars?
0: I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I currently live about 30 miles north in Marysville. I grew up around Mopars. I spent a lot of my formative years... In a 1975 Dodge Custom, what we know now as a boogie van. Really? Um, yeah, my dad bought a 75 cargo van, a Dodge black, nothing in it, completely gutted, and he built it from the ground up. You know, the shag carpet, the bed in the back, the spoiler, the porthole windows, the side pipes, the cragger mags, all of it, the it fender is. flares, the whole kit and caboodle. Along with that vehicle. My dad in 1985, I was born in 1985, I'm 35, Mm -hmm. and my dad bought a brand new Dodge Daytona Turbo Z in 1985, black with louvers, and the car has a talking computer in it, so it will tell you if your doors are ajar, and things like that. And as a kid, I thought that was the coolest car ever, because Mm -hmm. I'm watching Knight Rider on TV, and my dad's car, you know, as a young kid, I'm like, oh my god, my dad's car talks too, so... (laughs) (laughs) Ever since I was young, Mopars have had an impact on my life, and when I was young, my dad didn't have a Mopar muscle car, but I had heard stories of his 1969 Dodge Dart that he used to go to the street races with and just have a general good time with, and I was always intrigued. I'm a car enthusiast first. I respect anybody that has a passion for cars. I don't care if it's a Ford, Chevy, or an import. I respect it all, but... I've always had a deep-seated love for Mopars, and when I got older, I could finally afford to get myself a couple projects, so here we are.
1: What were your first projects?
0: My first Mopars were a 1969 Dodge Dart, coincidentally the same color as my dad's. Neat. I found that, and now I also have a 1976 Dodge D100 shortbed pickup truck that I love as well. that was kind of like my answer to the C-10s because I've had C-10s before in the past, before I got into buying my own Mopars. I worked for a construction company and the owner bought me a C-10. So I've had my fair share of different vehicles, but something always dragged me back to Mopars. And when I was finally in a position to get myself a couple, I uh, never looked back.
1: Cool. That's awesome. All right. So the first two vehicles that exposed you, I was exposed to those same two vehicles. The boogie van. Yeah, my neighbor it's such a long story and it sounds a little, I assure you, everything was in the up and up, but my neighbor's (laughs) (laughs) brother-in-law had this boogie van and my neighbors and I were just really good friends. And this was when I was a kid and we would cruise in the boogie van and I think he was selling drugs out of it. (laughs) And now when I look back on that, (laughs) I know that (laughs) it was awesome. It had a mattress in the back and side pipes and it was super cool, big open slot mags. you know, A lot of the stuff that you know, went out of fashion and now back in fashion, that type of stuff. And the Z that you talked about, the Daytona, I don't know that I was in that particular car, but I remember the talking computer in all of the cars of that era from Chrysler, you know, the digital readout on the dash, like, Oh my Lord, it's block (laughs) letters. (laughs) It's going to tell me everything. It's so accurate.
0: It was the future back then.
1: Yeah. That brings back a lot of fun memories. So for me, and I don't know if I'm going to pass your Mopar test, but mine totally came from TV. I'm sure you know this. I fell in love with the Dukes of Hazzard as a kid, like a lot of kids from my era. And to me, it, the generally, that charger, that body style, it, it's not even a car. It's like human. It's so good looking. It's like Superman combined with a Lone Ranger's horse. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's more than a car. And that's what got me interested in learning more about Mopars, period. So I kind of like all muscle cars in general. I grew up in a GM family. That's still probably my first love, but I've now had them all. But really, you know, I finally got a 69 Charger. We've made a really accurate season two era from the Dukes of Hazzard generally out of it. I've learned a lot about it. My first experience, though, personally with Mopars, and I'd be curious if, if you had one of these too, was actually kind of like a roadkill experience. My family had a late 70s, 25-foot long RV, and the power plant was a 440. And that meant all of the running gear stuff was Chrysler. So it had an ammeter on the dash, right? I mean, it had a full Chrysler, you know, basically one-ton truck running gear up front. That was my first experience with it. How about you? Have you ever run into like RVs? Is that important to you? That's also where 440 came from. That was the first 440 I ever saw.
0: You know, my dad never owned a Dodge RV, but they're so prevalent when it comes to getting those big blocks or even, you know, 360s and whatnot, you can get those in RVs. And now I see so many old Mopar powered RVs that are basically free with the complete drivetrains Mm -hmm. that, you know, I know that a lot of people are taking advantage of that. And that's what I would suggest if, you know, you have an old Mopar and you're looking for an engine and a drivetrain and you need one. Go scour your local classifieds, and chances are you're gonna find a very reasonably priced old RV, maybe even free, tow to your house and gut it and take all the powertrain out of it and use it for your Mopar.
1: Our show writer, Scott Stapp, he bought his dream car. It was a car he was chasing for a long time. I think it was a neighbor 69 charger. He got a 440 for it out of an RV. Yeah. And and he brought this claptrap RV home and he just <laughs> cut the RV apart to get to the motor. I mean, it was just <laughs> cut it up and throw it away when i got rid of my family's rv i felt pretty bad about it and i remember i took it to a donation center which just happened to be a junkyard and <laughs> i told them could you maybe not cut this up <laughs> because someday i'd like to come back and get the engine <laughs> that's funny <laughs> I, I don't think that they listened to me but <laughs> we'll tell you what i would like to get a little mopar education here I'm not sure if you'd rather talk about the Mopar Hunter side or just start walking us through different Mopar lineups and powertrains. Actually, I do know what I want. What's the Mopar Hunter? What does that mean?
0: So as a kid, going back to my childhood, I spent a lot of my free time looking at classified ads from auto trader, old car trader, deals on wheels, any publication that I could get my hands on that had classifieds back when they were still black and white. And when you were done reading them, you'd have black ink on your fingers. Mm-hmm. I have always been a car guy that I just loved looking at cars for sale. I don't know what it was. My dad and I used to go to car dealerships, you know, classic car dealerships and just look around. And I was always so fascinated with it. In 2015, I had gotten a tip that at my local pick and pull, there was an old Dodge. And, you know, that's all the description I got being curious, I went and looked at it. And I was on social media at the time as well. And I remember posting about it, and I tagged it Mopar Hunter. None of my friends are Mopar guys as much as I am, none of my real close personal friends. And I wanted to talk to more Mopar people. So I thought, you know, Facebook is so big, and social media is so huge, that why don't I start a Facebook page and share the finds that I find? You know, whether it be out in the real world or on Craigslist, I am a huge fan of, you know, I spend way too much time on Craigslist, I'll be honest. Uh, Every week, multiple times a day, I'm checking Craigslist ads. I've got notifications on so many different sites that sell cars that, you know, my phone's constantly flooded. But I started sharing all these cars that I was finding on Craigslist that I thought were interesting. You know, there's no rhyme or reason to what I did. It was mostly like, oh, this one's cheap, or this one's really cool, but I'm not in the market to buy any of them. So I just post what I think is interesting or conversational. Mm-hmm. And with Facebook, it's interesting to watch how these pages grow and how many people share the content. And it started growing. It grew to a hundred people, five hundred people, thousand, and then so on and so forth. And we're at thirty-six thousand people, and it just amazes me that so many people are like me and just want to look at cars for sale and just, you know, chat about them. That's what developed into the podcast because I was like, I'm not a real talkative guy. I was never really too social with the Mopar Hunter. I kind of was just like the guy behind the name. And Hmm. I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? I want to talk to people. I want to tell them how I feel about Mopars and maybe they'll listen, maybe they won't. So the idea of starting a podcast developed because like I said, I had been listening to so many other podcasts and I enjoy them so much. I love podcasts. I'm a garbage truck driver by day and a Mopar hunter by night is what I like to say. So that's that's how Talking Mopars got started.
1: Great job answering both questions in one fell swoop. And on the podcast side, listen specifically to what Chris said and what all of his motivations are. Chris, podcasting at first is really fun and then it could become a grind, right? I mean, you know this, even though you enjoy what you're doing, like, oh, dang, I got to get a show out this week. And all the prep that goes into making that 35 or 40 minute show is a lot more than 35 or 40 minutes. (laughs) So it's worth doing for the right reasons. What Chris is describing are the right reasons. I'm sure you've gotten people who have asked you for help about starting a show or a podcast or a network or whatever. I have too. I used to try to help people out a little more than I do now. And I finally got to the point where there's a good enough set of resources online that they can get what they need. But I also made sure like to only encourage those that I thought they had the right motivations. And I I cautioned them like this is going to be hard here. Here are some of the pitfalls that are going to come into this. If you check all these boxes of passion, go for it. If not, do something else. There are plenty of other things that you can do with that passion. Absolutely. But maybe not this one. Okay. So that's so terrific. I'm so glad you shared that. By the way, when I was prepping for this interview, I went out and hunted through your stuff. You know, I did the social media stock like we all do. And <laughs> yeah. and I got sidetracked on your Facebook page, uh, the 68 Charger for 39,000 that you posted <laughs> that's now in Boston, but was in California. That's got me intrigued. I like it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while you hit on something really good. And I, I get excited when I find the special cars and I'm like, oh man, people are going to go nuts over this. Personally, I gravitate towards the project cars. You know, I love and respect any fully restored Mopar or survivor quality car, but there's something about this ratty muscle car movement that Mm -hmm. really intrigues me. And I think that roadkill definitely brought it to the forefront. But even before roadkill, there was social media influencers that were showing off these ratty Mopars. And for me, it's nice because you hear a lot of talk of, oh, you know, these guys want Barrett Jackson prices, or, you know, Mopars are priced out of the blue collar checkbook. And for me, I'm like, you can still get a cool project car that, you know, may need a little work and some elbow grease to get running and driving. But there's also some complete project cars that maybe aren't running that you can get running really easily and just have fun. You don't need to have something really shiny to have fun with these old cars. You really don't. And Roadkill has definitely proven that. So I'm really excited that The movement is growing. Like if I go to a car show, you know, like I said, I love all the shiny stuff, but you know, if I see a clapped out 68 charger RT, you know, that looked like somebody just pulled it out of a shed for 30 years, I'm probably going to go check that thing out first and just see what it's all about. To be honest,
1: I will as well for all the same reasons. And as I've gotten older, the hot rodder in me never would have understood this, but this 68 (laughs) charger that you've shown here. This is not a car I would have ever been interested in 10 years ago, but I'm interested in it now, especially that I've had a Charger because this is, you know, presented as an original car. And now I kind of understand why there are values to that. I may not want to own this car, but I sure would like to go through it (laughs) and understand like, oh, this is why this goes here. This is why this one doesn't go here. Okay, I get it. I get it. You know, that to me is... So interesting, but since this is episode 440 of the muscle car place, I would like a little bit of education and this is stuff. I just don't know on our sister show, the Kibby and friend show, my co-host, Justin corndog, Cornette. I know he could give me this lesson, but I've never asked him. What is the history of the 440? Here's why I ask when I was a kid, read all the magazines and they'd say like wedge. And I would remember reading wedge. Cool. I don't know what that means, but cool. (laughs) So what is the history of maybe Chrysler big blocks in general leading up to the creation of the 440?
0: You know, before I answer that question as best as I can, I would like to preface it by saying that I've never claimed to be a Mopar expert. And the funny thing about what I do is that I get a lot of people asking me questions that, frankly, I don't know the answer to. Part of the fun of being a Mopar guy is that there's so much to learn and so much to absorb and consume as far as the history of Mopars that you could get really lost in all the little tidbits of information. And I mean, if you talk fender tags with somebody who doesn't know what a fender tag is, you're going to confuse them right off the bat. But going back to your question, if you think about a hemi cylinder head, you have hemispherical combustion chambers. The wedge head Of the wedge motors that you're talking about have wedge shaped cylinder heads, or combustion chambers rather.
1: Is that what that means? Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, never knew. (laughs) Yeah, and big blocks. I mean, if you go back to pre 440 big blocks, you have the 413. You know, the engines that were pre Hemi and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But with 440s, you find a lot of the early cars the max wedge cars, that's something that I'm starting to learn more about because my knowledge of Mopars really started with the big start of the muscle car era. And I would say 1968 is when things really took off for Chrysler as far as getting into the whole movement of muscle cars and really marketing towards the youth enthusiast market. Sure, I mean, when you talk about a 440, if you talk to any Mopar guy, I think the 440 is the flagship engine for Mopars. Everybody knows the Hemi, but not everybody can have a second-gen Hemi, which is the 426. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're a blue-collar guy like myself getting a big block, you're going to be aiming for the 440 at first, to be honest. But the history with 440s is mid-60s, Chrysler came out with the 440, and many iterations of it have happened throughout the years. You got the 440 six-barrel and six-packs, and I really think that a 446 pack could compete with a Hemi. You know, there's a lot of debate going on with the different cars that have 426 Hemis versus, you know, 446 packs or six barrels of which ones are faster. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge fan of 446 packs. You said
1: 413 and I really am a rookie on this stuff. So for example, my charger has a 383. My understanding is that's called a B, letter B block, a 440 is a similar configuration, but the deck is taller. And I think that's called RB for raised block. And the only reason I know this is because I bought the wrong parts once. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And when they didn't fit, actually, my buddy Cody said, is this B or RB? And we had to do some digging and we had ordered the right part, but been given the wrong thing. And it was like the valley tray or something like that. You know, that goes under the intake manifold. And sure enough, we had the RB and what we needed was the B. So that made me think, well, I think there's some commonality in the blocks in here. Maybe there's more to do with, you know, the internals of them, you know, besides just the fact that one is taller deck than the other. But then you said 413. Are 413 and 440s related, or are they just related because they're both big blocks?
0: They're definitely related because they're big blocks. The 413 was, now, I being a Mopar guy, if you're in the world of Mopar, if you say the wrong thing, even if it's by accident, if you call a 440 six-pack, uh, six-barrel, or vice versa, because one is for Plymouth and one is for Dodge. Dodge is six-pack, Plymouth is six-barrel. If you flip-flop those, or even in colors, <laughs> if you call a Plymouth that is FC7, which is in violet, if you call that plum crazy, the Mopar guys will go nuts and eat you alive. So I'm sure I'll get plenty of messages from <laughs> all my friends. Uh, but the 413s are big blocks, and I believe they are... RBs, like i said my knowledge for the earlier stuff i'm still learning with that kind of stuff but definitely what you're saying about getting things confused and that's going back to you know how much there is to learn with mopars <laughs> i can't explain how much little differences and mm-hmm. just specifications with mopar stuff is just if you go down that rabbit hole good luck. That's all I have to say about that. I don't Um,
1: know if you've ever considered running for office. I think you should consider it. Honesty goes a long (laughs) way in this country, Chris, Uh, (laughs) saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. is a pretty damn good answer.
0: I would never BS somebody. (laughs) When I get questions, I am a great guy at pointing you in the right direction, to be honest with you. (laughs) I have no problem doing that. And a lot of people just need to suck up their pride a little bit and just say, Hey, I don't know. You know, I see a lot. That's another thing about social media is you see people talking about things that they have no idea what they're talking about. It's the spread of false information. And I would hate to be a contributor to that. And that's not the message that I want to portray.
1: What a great answer <laughs> just across the board. No, I think that's awesome. And I'm learning uh, Me <laughs> the Mopar world about everything, just my own car. I've had such a trip, just a great time learning how this charger works. And I will tell you, some of the learning has come with frustration. Let me give you some examples, Chris. Are you ready? Okay. Yes, sir. I got this 69 Charger, and it was exactly what I wanted. It was painted like a General E. It was a big block car, and I knew that it pretty much needed everything else. And not only to make it a General E, but just to make it kind of right. I ended up keeping the 383. The car is still orange, and everything else is different, which is great. That's just what I wanted to do. I put a 70 Charger rear end in it, actually uh, from another B-body. I put a 70 K-member under the front, which I got from Mike Finnegan. It's already restored, ready to go. I knew there were slight differences in the front K-member just the way the sway bar mounts. I did not know that the vent on the rear end for the factory brake line is in a slightly different position on a 70 than a 69. So when I overnighted the brake lines to... (laughs) get myself ready for the next event and i went to go install the vent and it was like three inches to the right i remember saying a terrible word and then doing some homework and sure enough 70 is a different part than a 69 when it comes to the reverse electrical you know switch you know off the shifter versus you know in the transmission for the backup lights 68 and 69s are different they just are (laughs) I have found all these little intricacies. There's so much that is the same, but the little differences will just kill you. And that has been fun to learn. And also the differences between manufacturing plants. Yeah. If it comes out of one plant, it's going to be this way. If it comes out of another plant, it's going to be this way. You know, from the outside looking in, it's interesting to me that, you know, you as a true fan of Mopar, you're still learning too. Because for me, I kind of assume all the Mopar guys seem to know this stuff. Like, (laughs) I just Uh, don't.
0: (laughs) There are some guys that are encyclopedias, and I love talking to those guys. Because like I said, I learned every time I dig into something with Mopars, I learn something new. In fact, you know, just our little talk about big block Mopars, I'm like, I'm going to have to do an episode on the history of big blocks. Because a lot of what I do on the podcast as far as I have episodes called High Performance Heritage, and that's where... I go into a person, place, or thing, or event in Mopar history, and I just kind of take a closer look at it, just kind of as an education for myself and for my listeners. I think it's really important that when I do that, I provide accurate information. So I do a lot of research. Like you were saying earlier, you know, with podcasting, I'm not an encyclopedia of Mopar by any means. So when I decide I want to do an episode, I have to dive deep into that subject just to make sure that my foundational knowledge is even correct. So, you just taught me a couple of things that I didn't know about the differences between 70s and 69s. I didn't know that. So, that's on an eight and three quarter
1: rear end. That's yeah. probably important too for all I yeah, know. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's little things like that where I'm just like, wow. You know, sometimes I'm like, maybe I'm in too deep. Maybe I should have, <laughs> maybe I should start a different podcast or something. But, I, <laughs> really do enjoy and love and have a passion for learning everything I can about Mopars. There's just so much to learn and so little time that I kind of pick and choose different eras and things like that. I have some people that reach out to me and go, hey man, when are you going to do an episode about this? Like the forward look cars of the fifties or you know, the turbo Mopars of the eighties that we were talking about earlier. I have to tell them the world of Mopar is so big and vast that We're taking off little chunks at a time, and that's why I bounce from generation to generation, 60s and then modern stuff, just because that's another issue, is that there is definitely a gap in modern Mopar enthusiasts and the classic Mopar enthusiasts. Now, some guys float back and forth like myself. I like it all. I love all Mopar stuff. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that there's a lot of guys that have, say, new challengers that don't even know what a Scat Pack is or how that even started or they don't even know what Mopar actually is. So it's fun to me to think that maybe somebody who has a new Challenger finds my podcast and maybe learns a thing or two and that encourages them to go hey I want to that's pretty cool I'm going to dig a little bit deeper and learn some more stuff or continue listening to Chris and or just go on podcastville and go find other car podcasts where they can just absorb as much knowledge as possible. So I really enjoy that part of podcasting.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting here. So our corndog, Cornette, my co-host on Kibbe and Friends, he is an encyclopedia of this stuff. And he has a (laughs) photographic memory. And he's also just a very kind-hearted person. And he has helped me with every problem I probably have ever had, especially when it comes to these things. And the reason that he knows them is because he's encountered them prior to me. He has restored a lot of these cars. and, And the older ones are his passion. One other thing that he told me is, you know, prior to 68, the performance was all there. Chrysler just finally put the sex appeal around the bodies maybe in 68. Yeah. But they had been building Absolutely. fast cars for, you know, 15, 20 years. And some of them looked like your mother's car, right? I mean, they were, <laughs> they just weren't that good looking to some, you know, especially in the early 50s with the Hemi cars. But now, today, they're kind of all beloved. Let's end on this one, on the newer one. I, I noticed on your website you had a, a link to DIY Hemi. That's Blake Anderman. He is just a superior human being, period. Are you working with Blake or are you, uh, is Blake helping with good information? What, how has your crowd accepted modern Hemi swaps? Uh, Blake was early adopter on that. I think he was one of the first to start doing it really well. Tell me
0: more. I will say this about Blake. When it comes to Mopar people, I've been blessed in the fact that I've met so many people through what I do that have become close friends that, Sometimes I have to step back and go, wow, this is more than just cars. You know, I've built some really great friendships, and Blake is definitely one of those people. I love that guy. I think he's mm-hmm. a great person. He's a family man. He's got a heck of a story. I know he's shared some of that on your podcast. He's been on your podcast twice, I believe. Yeah. He's been on my podcast once, and he's just a great guy. If I remember right, I reached out to him just because I was into the modern Hemi swaps and the old stuff. And before I even talked to him for the first time, I was consuming every piece of content that he had because I bought myself a little modern Hemi and I had planned to put it in my 76D100. So I needed to absorb as much information as I could get my hands on. I reached out to Blake and we started talking and he is definitely leading the charge. And now you're seeing bigger manufacturers come out with the technology required to... I mean, even Mopar has kits to adapt the modern Mopar drivetrains into the classic Mopars, which I think is really cool. But Blake's a good friend, and we do work together, not on a monetary or anything like that basis, but he definitely helps me out with any questions I have. And if you're talking about an encyclopedia for swapping a modern Hemi into an old car, he's the guy. He's the first person I think of. And I'm not sure if there's a question I could ask him about that swap that he wouldn't be able to answer.
1: Well, he's got that engineer mind and there's nothing. He's not afraid to learn anything and there's no ego involved. And he really was the first guy because LS became pretty accepted, easily understood. Everybody could swap an LS and that was way before you could buy, you know, a factory harness from Holly or Ron Francis or go down the list. It used to be you just had to take the factory harness apart and, you know, strip it and do all that. Well, when it came to the Mopar side, it's a different configuration. There's a crap ton more stuff that you seem to have to know. He figured all that out. He has simplified it, and it's still a great way to go about it, right? I just watched one of his, of his videos, like, all right, here's the harness. We're going to take this, 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 and this, and it's going to be super quick and easy. And he's Right. DIY Hemi. Uh, we'll both plug that one because it's just so valuable, but I too am a fan of motor swaps when it comes to my charger, because I want it to be a, the TV hero car that it is. It's going to have that 383 in it no matter what, but it would not bother me at all. If that 383 was a stroker and it was actually 496, but looked like a <laughs> 383. I don't care. That's still cool. Yep. I would enjoy that very much. Tell you what? I don't know the answer to this. Are we going to meet at the Mo Party event? Is that going to happen or is that not going to happen?
0: Man, I wanted to go out there so bad. I don't know if I'll be able to get the time off of work. And I've already tried to create an itinerary of how I would make it work because I would have to leave on Friday night. But all the flights heading out of Seattle to get to Nashville don't get there till the morning. And I would have to leave on Saturday evening, basically. So I'm like, gosh, can I go out there? And I am so disappointed that a lot of our favorite events, some that I plan to go to this year, for the first time ever have been canceled because of this virus, which I don't even like talking about, but I think Mm -hmm. it needs to be mentioned that for everybody out there, you know, it sucks. I get it, but you know, just put on that map, wash your hands, do whatever we can. We need these car events back. I know there's a lot of people out there listening to this podcast that are probably missing all their favorite shows, all their local events. I know I'm jonesing to go to a car show. I've tried to figure out how I can get to Mo party because It is the first Mo Party event, and I feel like a piece of my soul is gone for not being able to make it to that event. And I'm still going to try, but I can't guarantee anything. I would love to go. I think it's great what Holly's doing. I will definitely be there next year. I will do everything in my power to be there next year. Hopefully, they have a second annual. I think they will. 2020 sucks. (laughs) I'm not going to lie.
1: It's just the year that keeps on giving of crap, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. So if we do meet this year, great. If we don't, if we can just get enough internet access, I'll just call you while we're there. And
0: (laughs) that would be great. (laughs) I would love to hear about it. Yes, Yes, absolutely.
1: I would love to, you know, keep in touch, you know, especially just because of the passion here. It has been a joy getting to have this conversation with you. And I look forward to the next one. What's the contact info you'd like people to go to? How do they find more about you?
0: The easiest place to get in touch with me or listen to my podcast is just by going to TalkingMopars.com or pick your favorite podcast app and just search Talking Mopars. You'll probably find my podcast, and I wouldn't be surprised if Kibby and Friends or the Muscle Car Place pops up either. It seems like every time I search for my stuff just to see how I'm ranking, you're always there, Rob.
1: <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> That's called uh being here for a long time. Sometimes yes, just showing yeah. up every day is also <laughs> a, a way to get a good grade. <laughs> you don't have to be good, you just got to show up. All right, yeah. man. You have a great day and I'll catch you later.
0: Rob, you too. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again to Rob Kibby for having me on as a guest of the Muscle Car Place, episode number 440. As an automotive podcaster, It was truly an honor to be recognized by one of the best, and I will forever be proud of the fact that I was interviewed on The Muscle Car Place. Like I said in the interview, there's so much to learn in the world of Mopar, and I'm still learning new stuff every day, and that's what excites me. I love and truly enjoy diving deep into the subjects pertaining to Mopars, and I'm going to use Talking Mopars as a platform to share everything that I learn and what I already know with you. I want Talking Mopars to be a hub for Mopar enthusiasts, to thrive as a community, and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and I hope that this podcast is a platform where all Mopar enthusiasts can come and feel welcome, whether you're new to Mopars or you're a walking and talking Mopar encyclopedia, because we need those guys too. And next week, we'll be having an installment of High Performance Heritage about the Max Wedge engines and the introduction of the 440s, because you know, I was nervous during the interview. I'm not going to lie. It was a huge platform for me to help grow my podcast and to get my story out there to even a larger audience than my own. And, you know, I actually know a little bit more about 440s than I led on to during the interview. I just, man, I, I folded under pressure. Now, I don't know a lot. And I will admit that. And that's why I'm diving deep in the max wedge engines, because I knew that prior to the 440, you had the other b and rb engines and you know you can't mention the 413 without mentioning the 426 max wedge you know what i mean so there's a lot to unpack there with the max wedge engines and the introduction of the 440 so i'm gonna get into it next week so look forward to that long live big block mopars i hope you enjoyed my interview from the muscle car place and i hope to talk with rob again someday if not on his show then on this show so Thanks for listening to the interview, folks. No Mopar left behind. There you have it, folks. Another episode of Talking Mopars is in the books. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. And don't forget that you can send me your stories, questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, and everything else on your Mopar-addicted mind to Chris at TalkingMopars.com or leave me a voice message on my voice mailbox at 209-28-MOPAR to hear yourself on the show. Folks, we also now have merch in the Talking Mopars merch shop. You can purchase cool things like t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, mugs, and more. So if you want to help support the show and get some cool stuff at the same time, jump on over to TalkingMopars.com. Big thanks to Rob Kibbe once again for having me on The Muscle Car Place. Be sure to go find that podcast, listen, and subscribe. Also... Shout out to Hemipages.com. Be sure to take part in the Build Mopar project. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go to Hemipages.com and learn more. The Build Mopar project is going to be awesome, and so far it is awesome. I'll give you a quick rundown right now. It's a community build where we've chosen the car, we've chosen the color, and right now we are in the middle of choosing the power adder. The car is going to be a 68 Dodge Dart Superstock Tribute car with a modern Mopar Hemi in it. And now we're going to decide if it's going to be an all-motor Hemi or if it's going to be turbocharged, pro-charged. We're getting crazy with this thing, okay? So go to hemipages.com and learn more about the Build Mopar project. Also, shout out to my friends over at diyhemi.com. Let's get these old Mopars outfitted with modern Hemis and let's Hemi swap the world. That's it, my friends. Until we talk again, I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that Was talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember no Mopar left behind.